Are you a musician interested in improving your performance? Welcome to Notes on Jazz. I'm your host, Keith Davis. If you want to learn more about jazz improvisation, harmony, and composition, or just want to improve your piano skills, this is the place for you. We'll be hosting interviews with fellow musicians, offering tips and techniques on study and practice, and lots of other cool stuff. Whatever instrument you play, or if you're a vocalist, you will find something helpful and interesting here. So come hang out with us at Notes on Jazz. I'm here with an old friend of mine named Ron Free. Ron's a great drummer uh, and writer. He's got a new book out. We're going to talk about that. Uh, he's got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. And uh, I think Ron and I, Ron and I have known each other about 30 years or so. I, we were trying to figure it out last week. I can't really exactly remember when or, when or how we met. But I think it's Ron more than that. Remember. I think it's more than 30 years. Like, uh, I can't keep track of time these days. Um, uh, I know it's moving right along. <laughs> uh, no, it's good to see you, Ron. Thanks for doing this. Good to be here, man. It's been a, it's been a long time, but I, I think it was in the eighties. Yeah, maybe how long? Maybe down in Savannah, probably at Savannah. At, at, uh, I started in Savannah and then Charleston, and I, I forget where all, but uh, yeah. our paths have crossed and. Uh, <clears throat> And you know we bonded. <laughs> yeah, we bonded, right? Sure. And I always love. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here now. You know, there must have been something there. You know. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, I just uh, heard from Quentin Baxter, and he asked me to give you his best. Well, bless his heart. Talking about drummers. Yeah, yeah. That Quentin guy's a genius. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, I'm going to do an interview with him sometime coming up here soon. Yeah. I want to hear that. Inducted into the the Coastal Jazz Hall of Fame the same year about. Four or five years ago, you know. Oh, it's more than I got. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> if you're not in there, you need to be in there, man. We'll I'll see what happens. I'll, I'll put that in Teddy's ear, man. He knows it needs to know. Okay. Is Teddy Teddy behind all that? Well, I might be in there. I don't know. Yeah, no, you'd know if you were if they put you in there, but you should be in there too. Anyway, it's a it's you know, small honor. If you're from Savannah or the sort of the coastal area there, that you're you know, you're eligible yeah. for it. So Anyway, so uh, it's great to talk with you again. I appreciate you doing this. And uh, I want to start off by just asking you a little bit about your background. Can you tell me sort of how you came up and how you got interested in playing music and interested in jazz in particular? Yeah, it's a long story. As a matter of fact, it's a big, thick book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. About it. yeah sure. The book begins with where it all began. Yeah, actually. Uh, in Charles. Okay. I ordered your book, by the way. We'll talk about your book coming up, too, but I ordered it. I haven't quite gotten it yet, but I've ordered it. I'm looking forward to reading okay. it. Well, didn't mean to get ahead of you, but... <laughs> no, it's right. no, it's fine, man. I started in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, that's where I was born. And uh, my dad was a jazz fan for some reason. Yeah. And uh, he used to read downbeat and metronome magazines and things like that. And he kind of kept abreast. I don't know why or how that came about. Yeah. But I was kind of born into that situation. And so uh, I I guess I got into he I had a flair for drumming because I was always pounding on things and so forth. And uh, as a matter of fact, as a my book opens with a poem called a parade yeah where i first got smitten with drums nice. not jazz yet but just the sound of those drums yeah. in this 
parade. You know, there was big, I don't know whether it was a Navy band or Marine band, but they had a whole bunch of snare drummers and bass drummers. So it was this big, big sound. And it was like, it, it just thrilled me through and through. And uh, so after that, I started pounding on boxes and so forth. And then I got a toy drum for Christmas, you know. And I marched all over the neighborhood and got a lot of people saying, oh, look at him go, you know. <laughs> and uh, so Gene Krupa was real hot back in, at that time. And so he was my first idol. Uh, my daddy had a record collection of old Norman Grand's Jazz of the Philharmonics. Yes, you remember any of that? That's after your time, before your, way before your time, yeah. Before my time, but I'm a, I'm aware of those recordings, sure. Yeah. So one of the things I used to have on on there was uh, drum battles between Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, and so they were my two first idols, you know. And to hear them duking it out, and they had Roy Eldridge and. Uh, Lester Young and uh, a lot of the old Ben Webster and all all these cats from way back yonder, you know. Yeah, sure. And uh, so I, I seventy eight RPMs. <laughs> yeah. that, that's what they were on back then, you know. And uh, so you could put it on, and, and like ten seconds later, it's through. You know, they, it, there were no long playing records that I knew of. Sure. So. <laughs> And so, so Daddy uh, eventually arranged for me to take drum lessons, and uh, so I did that for a while. And then uh, I won a contest. Nice. Supposedly, uh, uh, an Arthur Godfrey, you know, Arthur Godfrey talent scouts came through town, and, and so I won that, you know. And picture all over the front page of a newspaper and so forth. So I was like, I was had my path kind of cut out for me, you know. And I, that was, and and I stuck with it, you know. How many people? My book begins. I can remember the first passage in my book. It said, by the time I was eight years old, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a jazz drummer. Go figure. <laughs> But that was my early dream from this inspiration that I'd gotten from that parade. That's why I wanted to do it, because I thought, man, I'd like to be able to thrill people like that. So that was my dream. Now, how many people, I think we were all born with some kind of dreams going on early on. And most people don't follow it because, and I ran into the same thing. Everybody was warning me, well, you don't want to be a jazz drummer, especially, you know, New York City and all that. You starved to death, man. But uh, anyhow, they were right. <laughs> it was a tough go, but I didn't let any of that deter me. You know, I was young. <laughs> I was a kid and ready to rip. But, uh, so anyhow, it turned out to be quite a saga, <laughs> quite an odyssey, the, the, the music journey. And, uh, and so... I have a lot of stories to tell. And so I, I, I put them in a book and it was rough going. It took me over 20 years to write this thing. Not writing steady, but I kept, you know, one time that's computer swallowed it and <laughs> and I'm, I'm a computer idiot. So <laughs> I didn't know what to do about that. So I had to kind of start all over from scratch. And by then I had to get a new computer. So anyhow, 
I fits and starts, you know, all along the way. And I took a couple of write, creative writing courses and uh, very helpful, uh, very helpful. I, I was just reading it overnight because, well, I, we could spend all day talking about the book, which I, you know. Tell us the name of the book while we're, while we're talking about it. It's called The Lamb and the Dove. Okay. And tell, how did you read the book? Figure out what that's all about. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us an idea why you came up with the title? Yeah, because it, it, it relates to a pivotal period of my life in New York, took place in New York City. After I had uh, made the big time, so to speak, uh, played with a lot of a lot of cats, man, and a lot of big bands and so forth. I got tail end of the big band era. And when I got to New York, it seemed like everything had just really been cooking right before I got there. <laughs> I don't not think so <laughs> I mean, 52nd Street, man, you heard about all the clubs, you know, and everybody, Charlie Parker and everybody was there. And then there was the big bands, you know, that's how I first got interested in moving to New York was because these big bands would come through Charleston and my daddy would meet some of the guys and, and I would always ask them, you know, like, what do you have to do to, to, to get into the big time? And they always said, they got to go to New York. Yeah, right. So that's what I did. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Uh, just so, adjustment to the light here. You, you, what do you need? There you go. Do you need some more light? Am I? Am I got? Do I have enough light here? No, you look great. Just uh, oh, I just closed some blinds. <laughs> look at the light. I, I, it's been a long time since I looked great. <laughs> I look old is what I look. <laughs> I've noticed like my my I got a lazy eye, you know. And I avoid mirrors, so I, you know, I probably have, I don't know how long I've had that thing. And, and, uh, and I didn't, didn't even know it till I started doing a lot of Zoom calls, you know, and I see myself and said, damn, it looks like my eyes almost closed, you know. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, I won't go there. I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh, take this wherever you wanted to go. <laughs> well, I, was just, I was curious about how you got to New York and what you started doing when you got there. Who did you meet and who did you start playing with when you got there? Well, um, one more second. Keep going. Don't stop. When I first uh, started playing around Charleston, you know, uh, with uh, local bands and so forth, when I was like 13 years old, I was doing gigs and so forth. Um, and so and I went on the road with a, a, a comedy group called Tommy Weeks and his Merry Madcaps when I was 16. Wow. And uh, that was quite an adventure because uh, the, the guy that led us, Tommy Weeks, was a very funny guy. And I had seen him in a nightclub in Charleston and he had him rolling in the aisles. Yeah. And that kind of I, I thought he was the funniest guy I'd ever seen in my life. And and I sat in with a little trio and he's the world's worst trumpet player. but He's a pretty good singer, but very funny guy. Yeah. Deadpan expression. And he knew all the comics. Don Rickles was even around then, you know, killing. But um, so this must have been in, I was 16. I was born in 36. So you do the math. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, I travel around with it. And, and I heard a lot of bands and so forth while I was traveling. Woody Herman and Lena Horn was singing right around the corner from this gig I had in Miami. And we were doing record pantomimes and uh, 
with the St Stan Freeberg and Spike Jones and all these. He used to make records and so forth back in those days of all kind of comedy things. Well, I guess they still do, only the long play records now. Uh, so I traveled around with the trio, hooked up with a carnival while I was doing that, playing drums for the girly show. Nice. And I sought that out because I, I like the sound of that girly show. Hmm. <laughs> well, I'm going to get to play my drums and watch them do some boogie in my yeah. <laughs> get my get my groove on. <laughs> anyhow, uh, so anyhow, I, I did all that traveling and went back to Charleston. One of my chapters begins, be it ever so dysfunctional, there's no place like home. <laughs> and that's, that's true. So I, I would go home and report my adventures, you know, to, to the folks and so forth. And a friend, just so happened that a friend of the family that I had known as a kid, he had rented a room for my parents. And, uh, and I really liked him. He was a very friendly guy and a uh, good looking guy. And he was, he, he never talked down to me, you know, he's just really personable and intelligent, very intelligent. Yeah. And, but he was a friend of my daddy's. <laughs> So when I went back home, I had a gig at a place called Berkeley Jungle out in the boonies somewhere. And uh, so Dick Torrance was this guy's name. And so he came to the club with my parents and heard me play. And I was, I guess I was about 17 then. <laughs> and... Uh, so when I sat back at the table I, on, in the mission, he said, well, he said, boy, what, Ronnie, he said, you sound great. He said, I, I want you to know. He said, I live in Staten Island now, and I'm a draftsman with Bethlehem Steel. But I got a real nice house over on Staten Island. And so whenever you feel like you're ready to go to New York and sweat out your 802 Union card, you got a place to stay free of and so forth. And I thought that was a beautiful gesture. And he, that was something he did because he, he, he was friends with my daddy. My daddy had, we had some issues. <laughs> the book goes into that in some depth, but it's you know, all things are complicated, you know, <laughs> especially father son stuff. So anyhow, Dick made this gracious order, offer, and uh, I took him up on it. Uh, I remember, I don't remember how I got in New York. I, I don't remember if I drove or caught a train or a plane. I, I'm guessing a, probably a train, but I don't have any memory. I just remember waking up there one morning <laughs> at Dick Torrance's house. He had a beautiful house in an area called Graniteville on Staten Island. And it was at the top of this terror. Uh, it was a Big, a lot of hills on Staten Island. Yeah. And uh, yeah. he was at the top of a really steep one, and but they were like layered or tiered, you know. There was, I could look out of his picture window of, of his uh, living room and look out on the rooftops and all down below and, and in, in the distance. And it was snowing. I, I woke up and I looked out that window and it was snowing. And I'm from Charleston. No snow in Charleston. 
I think it snowed once throughout my whole life as a kid. But anyhow, I'd never seen anything so beautiful. It, it, the rooftops were all covered with snow, and it was still coming down. And it was covering the grounds and the treetops. And it was like a, a fairyland or something. And I, I, I just stood there and it just... There are no hills in Charleston either, you know. So here it was, hills and snow, <laughs> and one panoramic view. And it, it was just incredible. And and Dick's pad was elegant. Every, the furniture and everything was understated. Um, so that's how I got there. <laughs> uh, and he had the radio going on. And two, hap two DJs were doing the happy talk thing, you know, between playing records and whatever. And Dick had a copy of the New York Times newspaper. And it was like this, you know, I'd never seen a paper like that. You know, we, Charleston paper was about like that. Well, are these, are we going to be seeing this on Zoom or is it just going to be a, because I'm, I'm making gestures that I don't know if they're going to be seeing. That's all right. You just, you just feel, feel natural, man. It's going to be audio when I put it on my podcast, but at some point I'll, I'll have videos available as well. So. But, uh, but you just just be natural, man. Relax. Do whatever you know. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, <laughs> at this point, I don't give a shit about the video. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. Um, so anyhow, should I just go on or? So you how, you started meeting people in New York. How did you meet people in New York? start going out to clubs and hearing music or did you know some people already to contact or not really dick torrance <laughs> yeah. he was my contact gotcha. and uh so yeah um i'm living on staten island and Back at that particular time, and I knew all of this from research that I'd done, you know, growing up about New York, because I watched movies and all about it, and I talked to the musicians that came through town. So I had a lot of information, and I knew that Monday, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday were union days. Where Roseland Ballroom on Fifty uh, Second Street in Manhattan was where the, on, on union days, all musicians from all over the boroughs would be out there on the Roseland Ballroom dance floor, mixing and mingling and handing out business cards and uh, handing out gigs and so forth and checks. And, yeah. and, and there was a guy on stage sitting, sitting on a stool or maybe a chair, real Brooklyn guy said, always paging guys with phone calls and so forth. A lot of oivings. <laughs> oiving, uh, might have been the same oiving, I don't know. But <laughs> So I'm taking all this in. But I'm alone yeah. in the big city. And I mean, I was alone. That's the loneliest I've ever been. To yeah. be in a place like that, but all this energy and activity going on. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm from a little sleepy southern town. And uh, so it was. It was. It was scary at first. Mm -hmm. I used to sit. What? Uh, uh, Dave would. I mean, uh, Dick Tosh would loan me his car. He had a Oldsmobile 
yellow Oldsmobile convertible. And so he let me drive around Staten Island, and I would drive down to the waterfront and look over at those skyscrapers across the way. And all kind of emotions would rise up, man. And I, you know, because it was tied into my dream, you know. And uh, and so anytime I went into the city, it, it, it took a, a consistent hour and a half. It was a half-hour bus ride from Dick's house to the uh, ferry terminal, half-hour ferry ride to Manhattan, and a half-hour subway ride to, to Midtown, 42nd Street. So I went over there to check it all out while I was living there with, with Dick. And uh, so anyhow, that was my first exposure. So that's... That's where all these musicians and some of them famous people I recognize, quite a few of them. Um, and then across the street from that was uh, Samuel Lano, a drummer named Samuel Lano, had a little drum shop, drum store. And I was familiar with Sam. I'd, I'd worked, he wrote several books, you know, bass bops and rudiment bops and paradiddle bops and, and all these things. And, and they were good, they were, they were, you know, they're part of my drum education yeah. uh, and so I went over there and looked, I'd never seen a drum shop yet so Sam was in there and he was demonstrating some stuff on the practice kit that he had set up and he had all kinds of symbols and paraphernalia that I, I wish I had some money to buy some of this stuff but anyhow I was just in town for the day so I wanted to uh, well I think I did stay overnight this particular time. But anyhow, I hung out there for a while and, and uh, then I, I'd heard about 52nd Street. You know anything about uh, uh, Charlie's Bar? Are you familiar with that? I never heard of Charlie's yeah. Bar, but I'm, I'm familiar with 52nd Street, sure. Well, Charlie's Bar was on the corner, of, or near the corner uh, on uh, Broadway and 52nd. It was facing Broadway. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd heard stories about it, read about read it. Downbeat always had stories. Anyhow, it was a musician's bar. And on union days, particularly when you go to Charlie's bar, it's so crammed full of people there, spilling out into the street, all musicians. Wow. Jukebox has all jazz records. And I mean, hardcore jazz, not, not just, you know. Sinatra and <laughs> Sarah Vaughan and, and the kind of things that you'd liable to hear sure. uh, on juke, regular jukeboxes. So, and, but I was real shy um, and um, didn't have a lot of stiff self-esteem because my, my daddy was very abusive. And uh, so I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. I was... I was a big man in Charleston, you know, big fish in that small pond. I knew I was, you know, I, I had a sense of, but New York City is so daunting, like you're, you, you know, used to like a little <laughs> minnow <laughs> in this ocean. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> everybody in, in the place knew other people and they were, it's very convivial, you know, a lot of laughing and, and uh, carrying on. So I hung out for a while, drank a beer or two, and, but didn't know anybody, and I was too shy to start up a conversation. So I, I just 
left after a while. And But I, I took notice of the records that were playing. There were certain records that got more play than others. And, you know, I remember Dave, Dave McKinnon was, was one of them that was played quite often. Do a single. Are, are you familiar with Dave? He's a piano player, right? Yes. Yeah, he was famous for the left playing left hand bass while he he could do solo piano and play left hand bass. Yeah, he, he, yeah, and yeah, he he was just an extraordinary technique wise. But uh, I heard him he live. Once his ass off, off too. Yeah, I, I I heard him once live out in Seattle actually when he was still alive. Yeah, uh, he came through Charleston one time many years later. Uh, but anyhow, he he he. He had an album out of just single piano player, and man, he, one guy, and it sounded like a whole band. You know, as he did so much shit with that left hand, and it was just rollicking. I mean, I swinging hard, with just just by all by himself, you know. And so <clears throat> that got a lot of play. And there was uh, an Art Blakey jazz messengers thing was was another band. Horace Silver, I think it was at one time, used to play with Blakey or vice versa. I don't remember. Right. Yeah, they were, that's right. They started that band together, I think. So both of them, they've they got a lot of play on a jukebox. And uh, Irby Green, trombone player, uh, whiz, <laughs> uh, he got had a record that playing, playing, playing his ass off. And uh, so, you know, you... Mentally, I was making note of these things, you know, because uh, you got a room full of musicians, and this is this is what they're listening to. So I'm trying to get hooked up with this energy, you know. <clears throat> so then I went on outside and decided to explore a little more of the Big Apple. And so I walked down Broadway or Seventh Avenue. I can never keep them straight because they're so close together, and they. Crisscross at times, but um, from a distance, I saw this crowd of people <clears throat> standing out on the street, looking in the window, and uh, and I thought, well, wonder what's going on. So I hustled on down there, and it was the Metropole. You ever heard of that place? I heard of it. Yeah, I don't know much about it, but well, it's 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 all gone now. But this was would have been nineteen. 55. Well, no. back a ways. I've been around a while. <laughs> Anyhow, so, so the Metro was a very famous place because they had old timey jazz men like Red Allen. He's uh, got a first name, which is uh, Henry Red Allen. And uh, Cozy Cole was doing a drum solo when I first looked in the window. So people stand down on the street watching it and they had loudspeakers that you could hear the music coming out there and it was this long bar that ran the whole length of the club and you had musicians all behind the bar this is behind the bar and so there's a stage behind the bar and so the musicians were on the stage all the length of the room they literally had wall-to-wall jazz you know and uh so that's the first time i'd seen cozy cole my, on my bedroom wall, I had pictures of all the drummers of the day. And Cozy Cole was one of them, Gene Trooper, Buddy Rich, Max Roach, Roy Haynes. And they were all advertisements for uh, 
Gretz drum, that great Gretz sound draws rays from yet another jazz star. And so I'd look at these pictures, you know, as a, as a, as a kid. And then when I moved to New York, I started meeting these people, you know. One of them was Shadow Wilson. Uh, he had played with uh, Cal Basie's band, made, made a pretty big, big splash. Even Buddy Rich made comments about some of his drawing, you know. And uh, so he was one of the, one of the first guys. Well, I, I don't know about one of the first. I can't keep track of sequences anymore. That was one of the biggest problems I had in writing a book. I thought, well, did this happen before that or vice versa? Or, you know. and yeah. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just, it's, as long as you remember the story, it doesn't really matter when it happened. You know? <laughs> so I, I finally got it we, we worked out. But uh, it, was a, it was a monumental achievement, I felt, when I finally managed to get all this written down. You know? And I think it's interesting stuff that you don't have to be a, a musician and all to appreciate it. It, it, it was and it, my adventure, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Grand adventure. So this is the mid fifties. You said it's the mid mid fifty fifty five or so. Yeah, that's when I arrived there. Yeah. Right. right. So uh, you started meeting people, and you started getting some gigs. I assume. Well, um, I was in Charlie's bar one day. Well, let's, let's, let, oh, I started taking lessons from a guy named Mo Goldenberg. Okay. He was like a staff percussionist with NBC. He taught at Juilliard and so on. He taught mallet stuff and, and drums. And he'd written a couple of drum books and so And somebody recommended him. I don't remember who or how, when, where. So I started taking a lesson with him. And I took a couple of lessons at Juilliard. But he also had a little uh, studio that he rented in Midtown. Uh, and you have to go up a... a, a freight elevator to the second floor or something and it's like a warehouse or something and he had this little studio there but had a couple of practice pads and uh, a xylophone i was taking mallets lessons from him too so anyhow he was impressed with with my hands and so forth and and whatever he was teaching me i was getting pretty quickly and so he Somehow he booked me an audition for uh, um, an off-Broadway show that was opening up oh, wow. called Shoestring Review. Shoestring 56, I believe it was. 57, although it, it opened in 56. And so I had to audition with the, um, the choreographer. His name was Danny Daniels. I've seen his name on some credits and movies and so forth through the years. And so he was a very vibrant, uh, friendly guy. And there were a couple of other people with him. I had this audition in some dance studio somewhere in, in Midtown there. And, uh, and Danny had conceived a couple of dance routines for which he just wanted only drum accompaniment. So, oh, I saw a bit of an opportunity there. So he kind of talked about what he was looking for and had me play some stuff to, that I thought might fit. And anyhow, he liked it. And, and so I got the gig right there. I even showed him a couple of shag steps that my sister had taught me. Yeah, yeah. She was a good dancer. And, uh, and he liked them so much, he put them in the, 
put them in the show. Man. That's great. Now, mo- mo- a lot of people here in this interview are not going to know what you mean when you say shag steps, because that's a South Carolina. Yeah, a, that was a dance that was very popular back in the day. It, it still it, is. It, they it's still with still beach music. music. They probably won't know what that means either. Beach music. But, uh, yeah. You don't have to read the book. It goes into some of that. But, uh, yeah. but that was my first gig. In the first place, before you get your union card in New York, you can only work one-nighters or at most two-nighters, a steady, you can't work any steady gigs over two nights a week. To work a six-night week or something, you need your union card and and to do record dates and so forth. So it just happened to coincide when I was taking lessons with Mo Goldenberg. I had just about finished my six months probation <laughs> uh so i was able to get a cook music card which i would have needed to do this gig so a lot of luck involved yeah. um, anyhow that 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 was my first gig and so from there i had a lot of free time because the show only worked a couple hours a night yeah. six nights a week and a matinee on sunday so I had a lot of free time. So I used to go in Charlie's and I, I met a drummer in there called named Frank Isola. Good drummer from Detroit. And we talked at the bar and I offered to buy him a drink and he ordered, yeah, give, give me a shot and a beer. And, and, and I'd never heard of such a thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 18 years old kid from, you know, deep south. And I, I, I might've, made some comment or something. And, and he said, oh, look, he said, is that too much, man? No, you know, you, I can just take a beer. I said, no, it's okay, man. You know, I don't even think the word, I, I didn't even know the word boiler maker then. It, I think that's what, what that's called, isn't it? A shot in a beer. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, you, you know, over a shot in a beer, Frank started telling me about this loft on East 34th Street where they had jam sessions just about every night. Oh, yeah. You're welcome to come down. He gave me the address. Come by anytime, man. And you know, sit down, play something. So I did. I, I met all oh, kind of. I met Mose Allison there. I met Zoot Sims, Phil Woods, uh, Al Haig, <laughs> uh, Bud Powell. I met all kind of people in that one one loft. That was my first loft experience. Wow. So. So I started, you know, it, it, Mose Allison called me for a record date. Oh. You know, after that, that's great. I think that was my first record date. <clears throat> uh, when the show opened, right before the show opened, we went through weeks or months of rehearsing and so on. <clears throat> And so the night before opening night, they had, I forget what they called it, but there was a special performance for show people because that's the best audience you could you'd expect for a Broadway show or off Broadway show because show people, you know. <laughs> and so they gave out a bunch of free passes to all the crew members and everybody affiliated with the show. Give this out to your friends and so forth as you think. So I, I went in Charlie's bar and has passed out a bunch of them yeah. for this this pre-opening thing. And so 
it was kind of a review, you know, and so there was a lot of comedy stuff. So people were laughing and clapping and all in all the right places. And I heard this peculiar laugh that I recognized from having heard at Charlie's Bar. I, I thought, well, where have I heard that laugh? You know, a very unique laugh. It's like, ha, ha, ha. <clears throat> <clears throat> this is Oscar Pettiford. That's the way he laughed. Wow. And turns out he got one of the tickets. And so he heard me playing these dance routines with, there were a couple of gay dancers. I was I was just astonished at the whole atmosphere. Gay people were just flaunting their gayness, you know, prancing around on the stage and no inhibition. And they're more relaxed and at ease. And I was at home with my family, you know. But uh, these these drum pieces had a, gave me a chance to, you know. Uh, I was raised on Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, so I had done a lot of drum solo and so through the years. I thought that was where it was at, you know, before I, before I learned that. You know, it didn't take me long in New York to, to realize that musicians in general don't give a shit about that. <laughs> they just wanted to feel good. <laughs> I'm supposed to make them sound good and not be doing all the drum solo and stuff. But I did have this opportunity, you know, in the show to, to, to show off a little bit. And it was very popular, got, always got big responses in the audience. And so after the show, I, the, the, the pit band was two pianos and drums. A woman piano, she was the band leader, I guess, and, and a guy, <laughs> and me. So, and I'd never done that before, so that was, a, I had all kinds of these new experiences happening, you know. That's great, man. So after the show was over, OP came by and shook hands with everybody and told us he really enjoyed the show, and so. It was the very next day, I got a call from Oscar Pettiford. Got a record date tomorrow, or he gave me the studio address. It was a record date with Chris Connor. She was a pretty well-known jazz singer at the time. She was with Stan Kenton. She had a hit record, as a matter of fact, called uh, All About Ronnie. So I I took that personally, <laughs> but that was my first record date, you know, and so here I come with a full set of drums, you know, tom-toms and, you know, hauling all this, slipping all these things around. And so while I was in there setting up, Oscar Pettiford made uh, some sarcastic remark <clears throat> because <clears throat> a guy that, knows the record business and so forth, a veteran, but no, you, you don't need a full set of drums for this. You just bring some brushes and, you know, a skeleton kit, kit we used to call it like bass drum, snare drum, hi-hat, ride somewhere. Yeah. Good business. <clears throat> so I was embarrassed, you know. He, I think he was trying to save face because he realized, you know, seeing me over with all that stuff, what a, what a greenhorn I was, you know. Yeah. And... Uh, that's a great lesson. Okay, I mean, I've, I've heard that tracks from that record every now and then on jazz radio station or whatever. It's been a while now, but uh, I, I used to anyhow. That's great. I'll have to look that up. Is it under? Is it under Chris Connor's name? 
Yes, uh, so her Gershwin album is probably still around somewhere in the in the cyberspace. Um, yes. So that was kind of that's the way it was in New York. Yeah. Very serendipitous. Yeah. Uh, I was sitting in uh, Junior's bar one night. First place you go, to, Junior's was a, another musician's bar around the corner from Charlie's bar. And uh, so you, you hang around places like, places like that, lot jam sessions, and so you get hooked up, hooked up with that energy that I had been so envious of when I first hit that union floor, and I, I integrated into that. <laughs> um, quite an adventure. Great. Wouldn't trade it for the world. All I've gotten a lot of trouble, a lot of pain and suffering, and in it. it Mixed in, but uh, what an experience! A bunch of them. Well, uh, about the loft thing, well, you uh, you turned me on to that book, which I have I actually have it right here. The Jazz Loft Project. Yeah, there's a picture in here of you with Zoot Sims. And uh, oh yeah, I'm sure there's probably some more pictures of you. But uh, you turned me on to this book, and I picked it up a, a few years ago when you told me about it. And uh, you told me also about the there's a documentary, which I haven't. I think I told you I haven't been able to find it online and listen and watch it yet. But it sounds very interesting. So can you talk a little bit more about the jazz loft thing? Like, what was that like? <clears throat> well, this 34th Street loft was my first loft experience. <clears throat> and I met a lot of the guys and so forth at that loft. But there was a whole bunch of them, and a lot of them were focused in a particular area called the Flower District, mm -hmm. so Sixth Avenue, Avenue of the Americas, down in the twenties and so on, uh, streetwise. <clears throat> so one of those was um, one of those. It was a loft building, and there was a photographer named W. Eugene Smith. He was a very famous photographer at the time. He'd worked for. Life or Look Magazine, I think it was Life Magazine for many years and had won a lot of awards and so forth and, and had quite a body of work. But he had a loft and uh, and then Hall Overton had a loft above him in the same building. Hall Overton was piano player, composer, yeah. teacher. A lot of people studied with him, Bill Evans and yeah. Marion McParnell. Uh, so he had a loft and he where he used to teach and so forth. And where, incidentally, he used to rehearse Thelonious Monk's big band when yeah, I was preparing down hall concert. I was going to say, didn't he help arrange? He helped arrange for that band too, didn't he? Yes, he wrote the arrangements, man, and that's where I, I that record probably did more for me in helping me to appreciate Monk. Yeah, I mean, I loved his composing and so forth. But anytime he played piano, uh, it, it, I don't know how big his hands were. I never noticed, but it's it's always sounded like his fingers were too fat yeah. to fit on the keyboard, and so they kept hitting the tracks, hitting the cracks rather. Uh, but by hearing the, what uh, Hall did with those, some of those recordings, anyhow, uh, I don't know how many they made, but. There were 
sections where the whole horn player would play monk solos uh-huh. from the recording that monk had made of I think that's the one. Anyhow, but there's one part of it where it goes, and soloed on on that thing. And to hear those horns and all playing those solos, I realized that even when he was playing piano, that Monk was really composing <laughs> yeah right exactly and and I, I you know i was associated with monk quite a bit we rode on the same bus for this um package tour i used to have back in those days and i was playing with lady trisano and oh, man. warren mars yeah. and they had uh cannonball adderley and uh mm, I can't remember who all was on that particular tour, but uh, I used to see Monk all over town at all hours of the day and night. Yeah. Just walking, you know, and he, sometimes he'd be wearing a Chinese coolie hat or, or a beret, or he had some hat wear, boy. Yeah. Uh, and so, and he always seemed like he was just totally out of it, you know, like uh, sometimes I'd, I don't think I ever had a conversation with him, you know, but uh, because I was intimidated. My goodness, you know, jazz royalty, you know, and didn't know whether to get on my knees or (laughs) bow and scrape. (laughs) Did you get to play with him? Uh, No, I don't. I don't believe I ever played a lick. But Shadow Wilson was a good good friend of mine by then, and uh, he he worked with him quite a bit. Yeah, he played. Had a lot of mutual friends, you know. But that's the way it was, you know. And I finally realized that New York is just like anywhere else. It's just more so. <laughs> yeah, sure. But yeah. the music business is just a matter of meeting people and getting, you know, getting acquainted and finding ways to be heard and, and so forth. Or you get recommended by somebody else. You know, that's the way you get gigs anywhere. Oh, you ever heard uh, Keith Davis? He's a good piano player, man. If you, if you need a guy, here's his number. <laughs> And that's kind of where I was sitting in uh, Junior's bar one day. I started to tell you this a while ago. Uh, and I was sitting with a, a guitar player that I'd met in there named Park Hill. And Park was quite a character. He was frequently in uh, Junior's because he had a, he was, he was in a pit band of a Broadway show on one of those big, long running ones like My Fair Lady or Pajama Game or one of those things. And, uh, and they made good money. Yeah, I bet. But Clark, uh, I knew from his reputation that Parker was a good guitar player. Well, you can't get, like, you got to be a good reader for one thing to, to get those kind of gigs. Sure, yeah. So anyhow, I was sitting in, in there one day talking to um, to Parker. We're sitting at the bar, and Sal Salvador walks in. Don't know if you know that name or not, but he was a guitar player with Stan Kenton for, for, you know, when Stan was really big, he was the big band there for a while, especially among musicians. Yeah. Um, that's where we found Lee Konitz and uh, Condi Condoli and uh, Buddy Childers and all these mega players. <clears throat> um, 
So anyhow, in walks El Salvador, and I recognized him immediately because I seen him in downbeat and so forth. Metropol, metro, metronome magazines. <clears throat> and so he knew Park, and so they came over and they're talking. And I only knew Park from juniors. We'd met there and chatted a time or two. He knew I was working a, a off-Broadway show, and he was, you know, we're part of a, a, a breed. <laughs> and uh, so he's talking to Sal, and, he's, and he says, Sal, if you, if, if, if you ever need a, a, a really cooking drummer, man, Ronnie, Ronnie's your guy. Oh, yeah. Never heard me play a lick. <laughs> We only knew each other from hanging out in in Junior's bar. And, and, but Sal said, oh, great. What's your phone number? <laughs> Takes my foot down. Two or three days later, I get a call from Sal Salvador, and uh, he's got a record date coming up. And he uh, wants to know if I could make a couple of rehearsals. And next thing you know, we got a gig in uh, Birdland. Wow. And uh, that was another dream come true. Wow. But... That's that's New York, man. You just you know, just uh, you hang around long enough, you get lucky, you know. Being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. That's for the master. Yeah. yeah. Meeting people. Yeah. How did you hook up with Lenny Tristano? That's a, I didn't know you played with Lenny Tristano. That's pretty amazing too, man. Well, it is it, the whole story is amazing. That's why I had to write this book because <laughs> I can't wait to read stuff, it. You know? I mean, it's just I uh, it reads like the stuff you read and or you see in movies and so forth. So anyhow, um, one night, Dick Tars decides to go into uh, Manhattan with me. So he's driving his sporty yellow convertible, automobile convertible. And so we drive, he heads straight downtown, parks a car, and we head to uh, the Hickory House. I believe that was on... Somewhere in the fifties, I can't remember. But I, I'd heard of that. I read about it. I read, heard records that were made there. You know, Marion McPartland and other people. And I, that's where I discovered uh, Joe Morello was. He was playing with with Marion McPartland and uh, bass player named Bill Crow. And they were making a little little splash there. And then, of course, Joe years later went, went on with uh, Dave Brubeck. So. Made a much bigger splash, but anyhow, the Hickory House was a very famous jazz club, and I, I read and heard about it. And so we walk in there, and it's kind of empty. There's a trio playing a a, a, um, a German chick named uh, Uda Hip played piano. It's pretty good, and she had uh, a bass player named Peter End. I N D, and a drummer named uh, oh, shoot, what is his name? He, he went on later to be with uh, Oscar Peterson. Made became quite well known. I, I can't think of it right now. A very nice guy there. And thinking of Bobby Durham? No. Who's it that played in that game? It'll come to me when I'm. When, yeah, when I'm I, think I, know you're too. I can't think of his name though. Um, so anyhow, Dick on their intermission, Dick invited the three of them, Yuda and 
bass player and the drummer over for a drink. We were sitting in the bar. The bar was behind the bandstand, and it was a circular bar. Yeah. So we literally had a ringside seat. And when the band took a break, there was a single piano player that went on stage. <clears throat> so Dick bought these people a drink, told them I was a drummer and so forth. And uh, so the drummer said, well, you know, won't you? He said the piano player's name, the single guy. He said, you know, won't you sit in with him next set, man? You know, on, on our next break, go up and play a little bit with him. And I said, okay, if it's okay with him. So it was, and I did. So that was my my debut, <laughs> my Manhattan debut. It's a world famous Hickory House where Joe Morello had wow. come into his space. But anyhow, um, I almost thought of that guy's name. Shoot. Yeah. So Peter End, as it turns out, the bass player, um, he was like a Tristanoite. Yeah, gotcha. Lenny Tristano had a whole following of, uh, they almost worshipped him, man. He was such a genius, you know, his composing and his way of phrasing and so forth. So I gave my phone number to Peter End and he called me and said, hey, man, would you like to come to a, a loft and, and jam a little bit with me and Lenny Tristano? And I'm thinking, huh? Say what? <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, yeah, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I, how I met Lynn. He had a beautiful loft somewhere in, in lower Manhattan. Dick Torrance drove me down in his convertible nice. with my drums and all packed up. Peter in and Dick helped me upstairs with it. And, and there was Lenny sitting there and, you know. It seemed like there was somebody else around. I can't remember now. But anyhow, we, we jammed for quite a while. Well, we'd play for maybe 45 minutes or so and take a little break. And it was a very strange experience because uh, nobody talked much. There was no idle chatter between tunes and so forth. You know, we'd, they would just kind of sit and uh, and... I'm not very talkative, neither is Dick Torrance, so I guess we were all kind of right at home. But so and so they were playing they were playing all these um tunes, standard tunes that Lenny had he wrote a bunch of other changes or right, right. wrote different lines along with him, you know, like uh like like Indiana, for example, Charlie Parker used to do that with standard tunes. He would write other melodies on top of the uh, chord changes. So they had quite a few of these, and they were all very, to my ear at that time, my ignorant ears, <laughs> uh, very complex lines. And half the time, I'm a drummer. I didn't know chord changes and all that, so I, I couldn't. So... <clears throat> And they would be playing standard tunes with, with these complicated lines on top. And half the time, I didn't know what tune it was. And it would take me two or three courses before I'd figure out, oh, shit, we're playing Sweet Georgia Brown or something like that, you know. Anyhow, so I was out of my depth from start to finish. But 
I must have done all right because I started getting some gigs from uh, well, I was working with well Lee Konitz and Warren Marsh were disciples of, of Lenny. Yeah. They studied with him and so on. And Lenny had played with everybody, you know, he'd played with Bird and Max Roach and all those heavyweights. And he was a legendary piano player. So that's that's how that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, that's great, man. So did you ever record with him by any chance? I made one record um, with Lee and Warren. Lenny wasn't on it. Bill Evans was on it. As a matter of fact, oh, wow. and uh, it was called Palo Alto. Remember the name of it? Palo Alto was the name of the album. I guess it was. I don't know whether it was under Lee Conant's name or Jimmy Jufrey was in town. And so he wrote some charts and all that were playing. And uh, I remember they, there was one course, uh, one, a bluesy tune or something that they played that was very slow, like and they had me play a chorus or two. On, on it, and I had never soloed at that tempo before. Wow. And I'm not tight in studios, anyhow. That's the most uncomfortable place I, I, I've ever been. Is like it's just very artificial environment, you know. It, it, it's like when somebody's trying to take a picture, you know, and you're playing, and you see the camera out there, and you think, well, do I, do I strike a pose or? Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 should I act nonchalant? You know, what do you do? You know, same thing with playing every little thing is oh, not on record, man. And this, this, uh, uh, so anyhow, I was always uptight and uh, never really recorded anything but that I was really happy with for my own part in it. But uh, until years later, after I finished growing up a little bit. <laughs> So I want to ask you one, another question about that session. You said the name of the album was Palo Alto, or is that the name of the record label? Do you remember? No, that was the name of the album. Album. I'm going to look it up. I'm real interested in hearing that. Because it was an alto. So I guess it was Lee Cornett's thing because he was the, yeah. the, the alto part. <laughs> Did you say Jimmy Jeffrey was on it, or he was just there, or he wrote some? Um. He was there. I don't remember if he played on it or not. So did um, you play with him too? You got to play with him too, some. Well, if if I did, it would have been there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'd listen to his records and all that. The West Coast jazz back on day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's a great player too, and writer, and innovative guy. Yeah, very, very prolific. Yeah. Well, man, um, I, I, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. And one thing that you and I talked about, you still didn't really tell me how you came up with the, the title, The Lamb and the Dove. But I, I like to ask about that. But also, you, you, when we talked about this before, when we reconnected, we hadn't actually we hadn't spoken to each other for a couple of years until we I called you a couple of weeks ago and we reconnected and had yeah. long conversations. And you said that uh, you were talking about this your music journey as being tied in with your spiritual journey and uh i find that to be very interesting i don't know if you want to talk about that here or not but if you would i'd be i'd love to hear it and i think people would find it interesting absolutely 
um, because uh, it all started. I, I was ag agnostic. My mother had tried, you know, she, she was a Southern Baptist from her mother. So she made me and my sister go to this Southern Baptist church. And and I, I thought, well, if, if this is about God, if this is God that they're describing and talking about, so well, I'm not interested. <laughs> yeah. It just didn't ring true to me. I mean, it, but my mother, you know, she listened to like Oral Roberts and so forth. And even as a little kid, I had to say, Mama, this guy's lying. It's a bunch of lies. It's a bunch of bullshit. I don't think I used that word in front of my mother yet. <laughs> but um, that was, and she made us go to some Sunday school or something occasionally. So I had some Bible things that were in my consciousness. Little fragments, you know, shreds, little pieces of it here and there. And I remember seeing pictures of Jesus and so forth. But basically, I was agnostic. I just didn't give that much thought to anything other than this. What goes on here in this world? And that was enough to handle. I I was having a lot of trouble handling that. So, anyhow. Um, when I got into New York, I got in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Drugs, yeah. heroin, got in a lot of trouble, man. Not many people make it back from some of the places that I've been. Um, and so I hit bottom. Rock ass bottom. I was suicidal. I was living a dream on one hand. And it was kind of all turning to shit, you know? Can we say shit? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so all my heroes and all their heavy drinking and drugs and so forth. And so I was kind of disillusioned with the whole thing. And uh, so I had, a, I had a powerful epiphany one night on a gig with at the Village Gate. I was working with uh, Mose Allison. Horace Silver was playing opposite us, or we were playing opposite the Horace Silver group, and they had several hits out, and so they were really hot, uh, popular, popular, and uh, jazz-wise. So anyhow, I, on the gig, I... I unknowingly had reached a stage or state of consciousness where I thought of it in terms of praying without ceasing. I'd read that somewhere, but I wasn't, I wasn't consciously praying, but what was going on in my head was I'm tired of all this bullshit, all this disappointment and disillusionment. I want the truth. I was facing up to the fact that I had a lot of erroneous information going on in my head. I wanted to see things as they really are, not as I wanted them to be or dreamed about them. I wanted to see reality. And so that was that was going for, I don't know how long. I, this had, had been 
worried and, and struggling with this deep depression, you know. And so that was a condition of, I was once set, something happened that uh, kind of got me agitated. It, anyhow, we had to go on the bandstand for, I believe it was the second set of the evening. Moe's, I forget who was playing bass. But I was so sick at heart and disillusionment and disappointment. I got behind the drums and, and I was sitting with my head just dangling down like this. I was too weak to hold my head up. Totally rock bottom. And I, I just wanted to die. And so Moe's kind of something off. I don't remember what we played, but it was an up-tempo tune. And all of a sudden, something took over my body, man. It was like I was looking down at a perfect machine. And I started playing perfect, catching every lick. I would no sooner think a thought than it was executed with perfection. And this went on through the whole set. I could do no wrong. Had perfect coordination between my hands and my my feet and perfect, uh, you know, my left hand knew not what my right hand was doing and same thing with my feet. And all this miraculous stuff, I had never reached such a, a level of flame before. I had quite a few eyes, <laughs> more ways than one, but um, it was an extraordinary experience. I had touched into a, a power. And <clears throat> of course, I'm still doing drugs, I'm popping pills and smoking pot and so forth. Every every chance I had. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, I, I and anybody else who heard the story would probably think, well, you know, this was just drug hallucination. But anyhow, I get off the bandstand at the end of the set because this went through the whole set. It was, was that same intensity. <clears throat> so I, I'm walking towards the back end. There's a... <clears throat> One of the things that happened before to get before that set, I had gotten into a little argument with Mose about something. He said something that made me think he was. It sounded racist to me. And Mose, I don't know if you've ever heard him or not, but he's he's, got, he's a blues singer and he plays piano. And he's from Mississippi and he's he's got a lot of. Uh, been influenced by a lot of black people, like particularly Muddy Waters and people like that in, in Mississippi, man. He's from Mississippi. And so I was thinking about the idea that Mose might be a racist. I, I thought he owed a lot to black people, man. And so we had kind of a little argument going on. And, and, and I was sick about that because Mose had always been a mentor of mine, a friend of mine, and giving me my first breaks, man. You know, he'd give, give me gigs wherever we played, man. Carnegie Hall, you know. So I was really sick at heart. And and race had long been uh, an issue with me because, you know, I, <laughs> it was that era, you know. Racism was rampant. It still is, actually. Uh, maybe it's a little better. I don't know. But <clears throat> so there I am. So anyhow, get off the bandstand. And I'm walking back toward the bar, and there was this table of four black people 
over on my right. And one guy sitting there says, hey, drummer. And I look, looked over at him and he said, you right. And in my mind, I thought he was, he was saying, you are right about whatever odds I had been at. I, I don't know, it's hard to express. <laughs> I did write it then, it's, it's written, but uh, <clears throat> anyhow, I, I, I waved, you know, he could have been just talking about my drumming, you know, that might've been his way of being drumming, but I, it was like, at the time, it sounded like he had listened in on the argument I'd had with Moe's, you know, something to do with race. But anyhow, I walked on back to the bar. The bartender said, hey man, you, I said, boy, there was some, some guy sitting at the bar here, man, he was really listening to you and digging you and asking questions about you. And he said, incidentally, it's some of the best drumming I've ever heard. <clears throat> okay, so I walk on out. Carla Blay is the hat check girl. Yeah. She's the ex-wife of piano player Paul Blay, and she's a tremendous composer and uh, piano player herself. Between gigs, as they say, she was a hat check girl. So she called me over and said, uh, I got a message for you. She said, uh, some, some guy told me, wanted me to say this to you, these specific words. He wanted to tell you that you're really great. But just the way that it came out and, and the whole atmosphere and one thing on, on top of another, beginning with that incredible set of music that I just played, that, ex that extraordinary experience I had musically, I went into men's room, <clears throat> went into the booth, locked the door, got down on my knees before a throne. Tears streaming down my cheeks. Praying to a God that I didn't even know existed until that very moment. And anyhow, that's, that was, that, <clears throat> Well, I might as well, I've gone this far, I'll continue. So, <clears throat> after the gig that night, I'm walking home, living in a loft that was Gene Smith's loft at that time. I was kind of freeloading off of Gene, although we were swapping. I gave him money occasionally. <clears throat> and, and we shared goodies, drugs, you know, sometimes, pills. So I'm walking from the village gate to the loft. Greenwich Village to 26th Street or 28th Street, somewhere up in there. And I'm walking on air, man. I'm, I'm no longer intimidated by these skyscrapers and all around me. Man, I didn't feel dwarfed by them probably for the first time. And I get to the loft and I open the door. And there's a folk singer sitting, a young gal folk singer sitting on a stool, strumming her guitar, singing about little baby Jesus. And there's Gene Smith with his microphones and his cameras and so forth, recording the whole thing. He was like a compulsive documenter. And he was very eclectic musically. He introduced me to the gal, and I don't remember the name. It could have been jo Joan Baez for a while. Um, that wouldn't have meant anything to me. 
but all the way to the loft, I'd been thinking about my experiences, my Southern Baptist experiences, and some of the things that I had remembered about Jesus and so forth. So then to open that door, and here she is singing about little baby Jesus. It's like, you know, it's inside and it's outside. It's everywhere. So I, I went on in the loft and uh, sat down in Jean's recliner. And I, somewhere in there, the folk singer left, I guess. But uh, I was staring at the wall. And I saw a shadow on the wall. A silhouette of a lamb's head drinking water. It would lean forward and then the head would be raised and you could see water dripping from the lamb's mouth. And furthermore, up above the lamb's head was flapping wings. I, I saw a dove. So I saw a lamb and a dove. Oh, wait a minute, before that, and left out a important part of that. While I was sitting there, I asked God to show me his face. And this is what appeared, the lamb and the dove. And I recognized the fact that this the symbology involved, that, that my prayer had been answered. God has shown me his face, the lamb and the dove. <clears throat> wow. So I looked behind me. So that, anyhow, that's the way that, where the title came from, book title. But I looked behind me, trying to figure out what was going on, and there was a there was a lamp on a bookshelf up, up over this way, and there was an oscillating fan that kept turning, and there was a there was a a long stem rose in a vase, the fan would come along and there was a glass of water in front of it. The fan would come around and blow that long stem rose into the water. It would come back up and the water would be dripping from the petals. But the image on the wall was a lamb's head drinking water. Furthermore, there was a book lying open on the top shelf. And every time that fan came around, it would blow the pages and they would they would flap. And there was a lamp there that, that reflect made the shadows for it. So that was the kind of technology that was involved. And isn't that something? It's amazing. Man. That was that was the and so I, you know, dealing with all this stuff, and I didn't know uh, had I been reborn? <laughs> uh was I the second coming of Jesus? I mean, all kind of wild things going through my head, you know. I didn't know if anybody had ever had an experience like that. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, that was the beginning of the, the spiritual part of my journey. It had, been, it had been there all along. I just didn't know. Yeah. I thought I was agnostic. So then you that I mean that it sounds like that was a life changing experience. It led you to start seeing things differently and absolutely. You bet. You know, um, would you say that helped you change? Like you were talking about being in a situation where there were lots of drugs and alcohol. Did that help you begin to to see that in a different 
different way and well i knew i had to give all that up Because otherwise, you know, if I tried to share it with anybody, they're going to think, well, that's all drug-induced stuff, you know. Sure. But I didn't drug-induce a lamp and a yeah. fan and all this stuff. So, but that didn't mean there was going to be smooth sailing henceforth. Sure. There was still a lot of heavy stuff to, to, to deal with. You know, I was having a conversation last night with a new acquaintance of mine. She's a singer down in Australia, and uh, and I know her through someone that I'm, someone who's teaching. I appreciate, you know. And she said, uh, she said, uh, you know, when people when people have uh, so like an experience like you're talking about, or when you you know you gain a certain amount of understanding, people think that it's like this enlightenment that suddenly everything changes. And she says. But just because you gain some understanding, it doesn't mean everything's going to be tra-la-la. <laughs> I thought that was a great way to say it, right? It does a lot to sort out there, man, you know? A lot to sort out, right? You know, it doesn't just, you don't just go to becoming happy all the time instantly overnight, right? It doesn't happen like that. Yeah, and, and I see, you know, these uh, Christian revivals and things and these happy, shiny people talking about being reborn and so forth. And, and they... they and I don't mean to be knocking any of them. You know, we, we all have different paths, I guess. But seeing all that, you, you want to would think that, oh, boy, once you find God, it's this smooth sailing. No. Not, no, that, <laughs> no. There's a lot of work to be done. And a lot of, uh, you know, but uh, that, that was the beginning of a whole new, I mean, in other words, my my whole thrust before that had been music. Yeah. And my whole thrust now was to, I got, you know, geez, this, this is a powerful ally. It turns out I've had, it was here all along. I realized that I thought I was, had been alone through all this stuff. Yeah. That experience, I, I came away knowing that I had never been alone. Right. God had been there all along. I just didn't know it. He's quiet. He doesn't brag. He doesn't, you know, blow his own horn. He's invisible. <laughs> he, she. He, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, God is vast. He's not just a he and he's not just a she. <laughs> sure, of course. So it turns out that Gene Smith had shelves upon shelves of books and recordings and all kind of Pictures and photographs all over the place. So I went and found some books. Uh, and a lot of things like Lao Tzu and a lot of Eastern philosophies that I was drawn to because what I'd learned of Western religion, it, it, it didn't resonate with me. So, so I discovered... You know, Confucius and Lao Tzu and uh, uh, Hinduism and uh, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Koran, you name it. Smith had it there on, on his bookshelves. And so I was started sorting through all those books, trying to understand what it was going on with me. And so I 
And I'm still popping pills, still token. <clears throat> um, spent a lot of time reading and so forth. And, and that first day, that was about the end of it where I had the where they had the lamb and the dove experience. Right. I was afraid to go to sleep. Because I, I just, I would be afraid it was going to all be gone if I go to sleep. And, and that what kind of was, you know, when I woke up the next day. Uh, I remembered what had gone on and I didn't doubt the experience. Right. But I didn't know how to get it back. Yeah. That's when I started reading all those books. And so I, was, I was trying to find my way back home. Our, our home is heaven, man. That's where we came from. That's how we got here. As a matter of fact, nowadays, thanks to uh, modern science, you can see a photo of space, of the earth. It's floating around. It's in heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all in space, man. There's... We've always been in heaven, you know. Yeah, you can't get out of space, right? That's what my teacher says. You can't get out of space. Everything is in space. You can't get out of space. You know, how can you get out of it? It's every it's everything. You know? <laughs> right. Well, that's a great story, and it's uh, I'm, I'm, it it uh, I hadn't heard any of that before from you. So I look forward to reading your book. Like I said, and uh, and that's really interesting because you and I have had conversations over the years about some of these things, and. Uh, and I had never heard how it started for you, you know, so that's very interesting to me. Well, it, it really gets interesting from there on. <laughs> you just heard the part where it really gets interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I can't wait for you to read the book so we can discuss it. Yeah, actually, you know what? I think um, we've been going at it for quite a while today already. And, uh, and this is really, I think this is fascinating. And like you said, in fact, we had a, when we reconnected a couple weeks ago, we talked for over an hour and, and I said, man, we should have recorded this. This would have been a great, a great interview, you know, but I think we should, um, I think we should stop for right now, but I think we should plan on doing some more and continuing, uh, continuing, talk, you know, because, uh, I think it's really fascinating and, uh, certainly for me, because I think we have some, I think we have a lot of common ground that, you know, I'm having interviewing people and I've gotten into this kind of this conversation with a couple of other people, too, that I, it's very interesting. People, people are interested in talking about their not just their musical experience, but their what their internal life is like, what their inner life is like. You know, people want to people want to talk about it if they if they have something interest in that, you know. Yeah, I find that very interesting, too. We all do, man. Yeah. There's billions of stories around it that. Millions of people, and they all got stories. Right, exactly, right. right. And, and we're all on a spiritual journey. Right. And once you find that out, yeah. then the stories come alive. You know, they take on new meaning. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of people think, well, you know, my life hasn't been interesting at all. Yeah. Every life is fascinating, interesting, got all kind of stuff going on, but you got to be awake enough to, to notice <laughs> Yeah, that's the key word you said. You got to be awake. You know, that's what all those traditions talk about: being awake, right? Yes. You know, waking up from the sleep that we're that we're in. Yeah. So, well, Ron, so yeah. That, go ahead. You want to say something else? I was going to say it's been great, man, and I yeah. look forward to doing.
do it yeah, again. I think we should do a part two. And uh, wait till I read the book, and then we'll do a part two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, good luck with that. Uh, and I, you know, I really want to hear from you. I'm working on some stuff now. I just discovered a a website called um, the book onlinebookclub.org okay. and they do book reviews uh-huh. and they do uh, discussion groups and it's all about readers and authors and so forth so yeah. fascinating place and and they have my book and it's oh, going to be reviewed on there oh great I haven't had any reviews written and and the thing that stirred that was a uh, this it's a library truck that comes to this little community this retirement community I'm living in and I wanted to get it into the Virginia library system. And he said, well, he needs at least one review. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I'm yeah. trying to figure out how to do that. So I'm going to get it reviewed. And Because I, I think the book is well worth reading. As a matter of fact, everybody who reads it thinks, man, that would make a great movie. But I've had some movie-making experience. So I'm not, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I want to go there. Uh, but that's all in the book. So, yeah, yeah. Great to see you, man. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. It's been a long time. Uh, and uh, I mean, like I said, we've known each other a long time. And So anyway, I look forward to part two. Is there anything you want to add before we stop for this, for this session here? Love you, brother. Love you too, man. Thanks for checking out Notes on Jazz. If you want to communicate with me, I offer free consultations. Just check the podcast notes for a link. You can also find a link to my website for CDs, downloads, and videos. See you next time at Notes on Jazz.